Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of The West Steps. And this is kind of our season finale of The West Steps for 2019. And it's very fitting that we have Riley Kitts um, here Hello. with us. <laughs> and the 2019 legislative session just wrapped up last Friday. Yes, it's done. It's over. Um, and I figured we would do a session wrap up on um, the 2019 legislative session. And we'll kind of start with the general overview of okay. how was it? What was it like walking around the state capitol and talking to legislators? And then later on, we kind of get into details. Definitely. So, Riley. Hi. Hi. <laughs> My fourth time. Your fourth time. You're so West. famous now. I know. Do you even walk around the street People without People recognize me just from my voice on the street now. <laughs> they hear me talking. Like, Are you the guy from the West Steps? Exactly. You're famous. Um, so, what was the 2019 legislative session like? Yeah, 2019 legislative session. So you're right. It just ended on Friday, and this was my first session with the children's campaign. Yes. Yes, it was excellent. My seventh session overall, overall, and this is my fourth lobbying. So been in the building for, you know, about seven years now, and it was super interesting. Um, you know, I think first off, we started really early this year, the legislative session. It always runs from January to May. But because we were getting a new governor and he had to be inaugurated, we had to move the start for the legislative session earlier because they need to be in session to actually swear him into his office. So usually we start like the second week or so, maybe even the third week in January on a Wednesday. And because the inauguration had to happen the second week in January, we actually started on a Friday this year. Mm. So we did all that pomp and circumstance the first week in January and mm -hmm. started on a Friday. Mm -hmm. But then that also meant that after 120 days, instead of us ending on a Wednesday like they have for decades, we actually ended on a Friday this year, which was good in its own right. You know, right. We had a full week to get stuff done that last week, you know, of session. But also it was a full week. Mm. Usually we only have like three days and that final few days to pass so many bills. Mm -hmm. So for, for me, it was great. You know, um, coming over from the Department of Human Services where I was their lobbyist for a few years to the children's campaign, kind of just uh, apples and oranges. Some mm. of the same types of issues, especially when it comes to behavioral health, uh, kids issues, family economic security and early childhood but the dynamic is very different. When I was at the department, I was, you know, their messenger. We ran a lot of facilities, 24-7 facilities, residential facilities. And it's a completely different ask when you go to an advocacy organization like the Children's Campaign, right? Mm -hmm. We're not in charge of services. We don't get any state dollars. We are really trying to advocate for school districts. We're trying to advocate for providers. We're trying mm -hmm. to advocate for kids and families. So the flavor is a lot different. Mm -hmm. um, but I liked it. Mm -hmm. I loved it. And what a time for me to come over to the children's campaign, right? Uh, we're a nonpartisan organization, but we had a governor come into office, a Democrat who said, I'm going to prioritize early childhood. And for the children's campaign, you know, we're one of the few people down at the Capitol that advocates for early childhood and advocates for them so strongly. So we had a governor on the campaign trail that said, we're going to do full day kindergarten and we're going to do a lot of preschool and pre-K excellent this is our time to shine mm -hmm. and we really mm -hmm. did shine this year it was mm -hmm. an excellent year for early childhood um especially mm -hmm. um but for the children's campaign we'll go over here in a second 
we batted a thousand. You know, mm-hmm. every bill that we initiated, introduced, passed, got signed, will be signed into law eventually if it hasn't been signed yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's been great so far. Mm-hmm. It was a very busy session. It was a session uh, where over 650 bills, resolutions, memorials were introduced and had action Whoa. taken on them. So 653 different things were introduced. It is. It's a ton. And only 120 days, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And a lot of those, especially they have money attached to them, if they have um, you know, funds from our general fund attached, tax dollars attached to them, they usually don't pass until the last couple weeks of session. So in the last few days of session even, we saw a couple hundred bills get passed by the legislature. So you saw a lot of marathon nights, right? There's a couple times they went until 4 a.m. in the morning, 1 a.m. in the morning. Mm-hmm. We're here very late. We're working way long hours. Um, and that happens every session. There's always going to be late nights. But in my time here, I've never seen as many late nights mm-hmm. as they had. Uh, this was the first regular session since like 1990 that they had to work on a Saturday. They worked on a Saturday leading into the last week of session. So That's everyone was crazy. It's a little crazy, right? I yeah. mean, like, you know, everyone was kind of in jeans and, you know, dressed down a little bit, but they were there <laughs> working. They were there passing bills. They had mm-hmm. committees meet on a Saturday. I'd never seen that. They'd always kind of threatened the use of a Saturday to mm-hmm. say, if you guys don't get your work done, legislature, we're going to have to come in on Saturday. And I've never actually seen them work it. And mm-hmm. so when they announced we'll be working tomorrow and it was Friday, you just heard this collective groan of like, <laughs> everyone's no. canceling their plans. We'll see you tomorrow. Yeah. Who's bringing coffee? Yeah. Um, but, you so know, they got it done. That's interesting. So it seems like there were so many bills and longer hours, even a Saturday. Yeah. So were some of those 600 and some bills statement bills or they're actually trying to solve problems yeah. for Coloradans? No, that's a, that's a great question. So this was the year, and we talked about it in an earlier podcast, It's this was the year of the trifecta, mm-hmm. right? So the Democrats controlled the governor's mansion and then both chambers of our legislature. So they controlled both the House and Senate as well. And you would think that when Democrats have – you know, full control that, that that their agenda items are just going to get through mm-hmm. and things in the past that had been statement bills or messaging bills, bills that they knew were never going to pass because the Republicans controlled one of the chambers. These are bills like equal pay for equal work mm-hmm. or family medical leave. Mm-hmm. Every year they were statement bills introduced in the democratically controlled House that would eventually fail in the Republican controlled Senate. Well, this year, because Democrats controlled both chambers, they actually had to pass and try to implement some of these bills that had just been messaging for the mm. last decade almost. Mm. So, for instance, we saw equal pay for equal work pass. We saw some version of family medical leave pass, not the version that Democrats really wanted. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was some infighting with even their own party, but they passed some version of a plan For us to start implementing paid family leave statewide at a later date. Mm -hmm. Um, So a lot of those bills in the past that had been messaging bills now had to turn into actual policy. There weren't as many messaging bills from the Democrats, right? Because they had control. They had the votes. They were trying to get policy done. From the minority party, the Republicans, we did still see messaging bills that never had a chance of passing. Mm -hmm. We always see a... 
um, you know, like a, a, a an abortion ban mm-hmm. or a contraception ban mm-hmm. or um, a you cut know, for Medicaid. Or- yeah, cut from. Well, we always see that every year, and we always will. Those will never pass. So we saw more messaging bills, I'd say, from the Republicans. Mm-hmm. Now, because the Republicans weren't in power, though, I think what led to a lot of these long hours, marathon debates, and contentiousness at the Capitol was that the minority party used procedural moves to make sure that their voice was heard. Mm-hmm. If you don't have the voice, if you don't have the votes, you got to use your voice, right? Yeah. You got to be loud. And so they use different parliamentary techniques, right, to delay bills, to really gum up the works, to slow down the process. And in the end, it was to say, we don't agree with a lot of the policies you're working on, Democrats, so we're going to slow it down in an attempt to not see some of these pass. And for the most part, that worked. The Democrats got a lot of their stuff done this year. They got major policies done. They got, uh, you know, the red flag uh, gun bill done. They got an oil and gas bill done. They got full day kindergarten done. Very mm-hmm. exciting, right? They got a lot of top, top priorities done. But there were also a few things, especially the last few days, that the Republicans started putting their foot down and saying, if you don't stop these things, if you don't, if you continue down this road, we're going to delay and delay. And because we only have 120 days and literally the session ends at midnight that last day, they were threatening to make it go that entire way and to have several bills, if not hundreds of bills, fail just for lack of time. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, the last couple of days, we saw legislation that we even supported fail because the Republicans weren't going to let them go through without delaying and sacrificing hundreds of other bills. So, for instance, um, there was a bill to strengthen some immunization requirements um, to eliminate some non-personal belief exemptions or at least make it harder to get those exemptions. That was a bill that was pushed by Democrats, supported by Democrats in the House, passed out of the House, got to the Senate. They had a committee hearing on it. They had a hearing where people came and testified. But then they ended up reaching a deal to basically have it fail. They laid it over on the calendar to to let it die. Mm-hmm. And that was one of those deals that the Republicans did not want to see that bill move forward. Mm-hmm. And they were ready to let hundreds of other bills die if that was going to move forward. So a deal was cut and the bill failed. Same thing with another bill that we've been working on for a referred measure to raise the uh, tax on tobacco and nicotine products. Mm-hmm. You know, highly backed by Democrats for the most part in the House was introduced very late in the session. It was introduced about a week and a half to go in session. Mm -hmm. And that was one of those bills that the Republicans put their foot down and said, if you try to pass this, we will stop everything else. None of the last couple hundred bills you still have on the docket will make it through in time. Well, a deal was cut. That bill was ultimately voted down. The tobacco tax was voted down. But what that did is it freed up the logjam. So hundreds of bills that had just been sitting there on the calendar waiting for debate, waiting for a vote, finally started to move, including some of our priority bills. So while it was very, you know, not good policy or we didn't want to see immunizations fail, we didn't want to see the tobacco tax measure failed, they did fail because Republicans used their little power to get that done. And that was fascinating to watch. Mm-hmm. That's so that's very interesting, because I think when we um, started this uh, session, we talked about the trifecta and what that means. Mm-hmm. And I think it's very interesting to see the behind the scenes of how a party in the minority can use some of the tactics and, mm-hmm. and the rules uh, to jam up like 
the process to the point where you have to negotiate to kill some bills in order to get others passed, even if you don't have the votes. I think that's right. Yeah, that's very interesting. You know, and it was mostly led by the Republicans in the Senate, this kind of gumming up the work, slowing down the process. The Democrats in the Senate only hold a slight majority. They have Mm -hmm. 19 votes to 17 votes for the Republicans, right? So if you have one or two Democrats who are a little squishy and could flip right on any bill, you're like, you're, you're kind of concerned. Now in the house, when you have a 41 to 24 majority for Democrats, it's a little harder for Republicans to slow down the process, but the house Republicans still tried it just the same. There's a technique used this year, a lot called reading a bill at length. And it's literally when you're debating a bill on the floor that you can have it read in its entirety. And to the record. And into the record. Yeah. Right? And, and I think for uh, those who follow the national media, Elizabeth Warren was doing that mm-hmm. with the Mueller report. Right. Right. Yeah. Having it fully read. read. And so there was even one point if, about a month and a half ago where the Republicans in the Senate moved to read a nearly 2,000 page bill at length. Oh, my God. And then a whole bunch of procedural moves were tried to have computers read it very you know faster and then – the Democrats were actually sued for not being able to – you couldn't hear what the, they were saying when reading the bill at length. But the thought was that they would have read that bill at a regular speed. It would have been like over 20 hours of someone reading a bill. And there's nothing else that can happen in that time. You have the, to wait. You have to wait. And so deals were cut to make sure that kind of stuff didn't happen over and over. But we saw multiple bills read at length. I think the bill that we worked on, like the census bill, mm-hmm. was read at length at mm-hmm. a certain point. That was only, I would say, like a 20 to 30 page bill. Still time. That still takes though. a while. Yeah. And when you have to have everything done by midnight on a daily basis and then fully done by midnight on that last day, it really does get down to hours and minutes that you have left. And deals need to get cut. That's how you – that's politics. That's how you see legislation get formed. That's how the sausage is made, as they say. Yeah. And we saw a lot of that this year. The Republicans were able, even though they didn't have the vote, were able to maneuver fairly well. Democrats got a lot done. I'm not trying to diminish that at all. They got a ton done. Mm -hmm. But the Republicans still used their voice as best they could. Yeah. So let's um, talk about some of these things that kind of made it through. So how did the children's campaign priorities – and the priorities for kids and family fair this yeah. legislative session. It was a great year. It yeah. was a great year for the children's With the campaign. big smile on your face. Yes, yeah, huge. Tell. You can see my smile on the podcast. <laughs> a huge, huge, huge year for kids and families and for the children's campaign. So we initiated 10 bills, 10 pieces of legislation that we worked on, a few with some various partners, a few that we were the lead on. But we ended up doing really well across all of our issue areas, across mm-hmm. early childhood, Child's health, K-12 education, family economic security, housing. We did excellent. Mm-hmm. And so I can give you just a quick breakdown of sure. some of our policies that we did pass. So let's start with our early childhood because mm-hmm. it was a great year for the early childhood. So let's start off with the big one, the big ticket item, mm-hmm. full-day kindergarten. Yeah, Full-day kindergarten, the governor ran on that. We've had legislators like Jim Wilson and Barbara McLaughlin who have been pushing it for years. Jim Wilson's this former superintendent from Salida, this Republican and he's like, this is his like sixth, this is his sixth full day kindergarten bill. Mm-hmm. A Republican bringing it every year. And it always failed because there wasn't enough money to get it done. Well, this year, Governor Polish ran on it. He built it into his budget. And then he asked partners like us, Stanford Children, D for others to really work on full day kindergarten. 
And we were really glad to build a coalition. I know that people who listen to this podcast have heard from Bill about the coalition we built and the great mm-hmm. policy we worked on. But next fall, starting next fall, you know, if your school wants to offer you full day kindergarten, a parent will be able to get that in this state at no cost. That is huge. huge. I mean, I think it's like it speaks to we can, you know, go into some of the other bills. But I think I just want to take a moment and and just really highlight the fact that one legislative session can have significant impact on kids and families. And here is a huge evidence that full day kindergarten that is a bill that so many legislators and advocates and organizations like the Children's Campaign have worked on for, what, almost 15, 20 yeah, years. years. I think by the Children's Campaign probably since our, you know, beginning, yeah. right, 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 right from the beginning. Anna Jo Haynes has been talking about full-day kindergarten and early childhood, <laughs> like one forever. of our founders, right? Yeah. And I think that's that's right. It's not just a singular policy, too. It's not just saying, oh, kindergartners are now going to be paid for. If you look at the spillover benefits that come from this legislation, it's it's incredible. School districts that were already offering a full day of kindergarten at no cost to their parents, mostly rural school districts, now have flexibility in their budgets to invest in long-term solutions. Hire teachers. Hire teachers. Pay them the right wage. Maybe do some facilities upgrades, some Mm -hmm. curriculum upgrades. So schools, right off the bat, will benefit. Mm -hmm. Families will benefit. You have policies that vary all across the state for how much parents we're paying to send their kids to kindergarten. Mm-hmm. Some districts charge $500 a month no matter what your income is. That's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. You know, nine months out of the year, you know, five, 500 bucks. Like that is a ton of money just to yeah. send your kid to the extra half day of kindergarten. Yeah. Those parents no longer have to pay. And then we just know this: the science is there. It's robust. Um, and a great start for kindergartners. Having that full day means so much. You know, my, my, my wife's a teacher. Um, she has a lot of friends who are kindergarten or first grade teachers. And I asked them when we first started. I was like, can you tell which kids were in full day kindergarten and which kids were in a half day kindergarten? And my wife's a third grade teacher. She's like, I can tell now. I can tell three years later which kids were in a full day wow. of kindergarten and which ones were in a half day. Yeah. Or which kids didn't go to kindergarten at all. At all, yeah. So I can tell that. And her friends can all tell that right off the bat. They mm-hmm. can really see it. And so we know that kids are going to benefit. Now, the last group, it's one last group that's really going to benefit from this bill, and it, it, it was highlighted, but I think we need to make it a stronger highlight, is mm-hmm. that we're also expanding pre-K by fully funding kindergarten. There's so many school districts that use pre-K slots to actually pay for the other half of kindergarten. Well, those slots will be fully dedicated to three- and four-year-olds now. So we're not just funding five-year-olds with House Bill 1262, the funding of full-day kindergarten. We're also freeing up over 5,100 pre-K slots for three- and four-year-olds. That's incredible. It's amazing. And and also, I think the one thing I want to tie back to is I think for those who who don't have kids, there's always this thing about, like, well, that doesn't affect my Mm -hmm. life. And I just want to point out for those of of you who are listening who don't have children, like myself, that— this has significant consequences for the economy. Yeah. So when kid, when parents do not cannot afford to send their kids to full day kindergarten, they are pulled out of the workforce, which exactly. means there is a stimulus and money that doesn't go into the economy, and that that is what raises what you know what our wages will be, what how the economy functions. So even if you like directly do not benefit by right. this bill. 
the benefits of it affect your life significantly. So I think it's like everybody in Colorado will be affected positively by this. We're going to see positive benefits, you know, kind of ripple through so many parts of our state economy, just policy in general. You know, we know that, you know, we now know that kids who are in the Colorado preschool program, we have that longitudinal data that shows us that they actually graduate at higher rates than their peers who weren't in the preschool program, right? So now if we have expanded preschool, pre-K, if we have expanded kindergarten opportunities and access, are we going to see, and I believe we will in 18 years, are we going to see those high schoolers who are kindergartners entering next year, by 13 years, are we Mm going to see those kids graduate at higher rates? Mm -hmm. Are they going to be better prepared for our workforce? Are they going to be less likely to go into the, you know, justice system? Because we do know that that correlates. Are Mm -hmm. we going to see higher third grade reading levels? I hope that we see spillover benefits from this one bill for decades to come. For decades to come. And I think that we will. Yeah. So what are some of the other bills that kind of made made their way up? So a couple more for early childhood. So we were working on, we had a bill that we introduced the first day of session and it passed passed the last last day of session. session. (laughs) 120-day bill. That's what you always look for. Yeah. No, you don't. That was so nerve-wracking. So we had a bill. It was actually House Bill 5. It was the fifth bill introduced. Which was to, which is to provide a tax credit yeah. for the preschool workers, for early childhood educators. And basically what it translates into, if you're a qualified preschool worker at a qualified facility, you can get about $1,000 a year extra in tax credits. So that's money in your pocket. And what we want to do is we want to thank our preschool teachers. That's a hard job. They don't make nearly enough money, about $12 an hour. They make minimum wage. Minimum wage, right? Yeah. We also want to incentivize more Mm because if we know that early childhood matters, if we know that the science tells us that it could really have spillover benefits for decades to come, well, then we need quality teachers and quality educators in our early childhood classrooms Mm -hmm. to be able to offer that experience. So House Bill 5 passed the last day of session. It was one of those ones that we were worried could die on the calendar for lack of time and it ended up getting passed on that last day with pretty broad bipartisan support, which is really great to hear. We also were happy to work on our um, kind of final early childhood bill was around um, a strategic action plan for a shortage in licensed family child care homes. Mm-hmm. And we know that's a big problem in our state. We've seen a massive decline in the number of people who open up their own homes as a child care facility and get licensed. And that's a big deal because the majority of infants in our state are cared for in those home-like settings Versus a traditional community-based preschool, right? You would think of a center. So homes are a big deal. And when I started off in preschool, I was in someone's home. At the time, I didn't realize how much rigmarole they had to go through to get licensed, all the regulations I had to follow. And so we're seeing that um, there's massive numbers of these homes closing and just not reopening. And so we passed a bill to establish a strategic action plan. And this group has to come together. And by December of this year, December 1st, has to come up with legislative recommendations, regulation recommendations, other policy recommendations about how we can start to allow these small businesses, these family childcare homes to set root in our state and actually thrive. So I think for the most part, early childhood, it was a tremendous, tremendous win this year. Mm -hmm. We also saw a few other partners pass bills like expanding the early childhood uh, low-income expenses tax credit, right? Mm-hmm. Our partners over at CCLP, the Colorado Center for Law and Policy, really, really tried hard this year and got that extended for another eight years. So That's it's another awesome. tax credit 
for folks who need to have childcare as a reality in their life. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then I think that we also saw really good budgetary actions. We were able to secure about $10.5 million in federal funds to help out our CCAP program, uh, the Colorado Child Care Assistance Program, um, which a lot of families rely on. So we were able to see about $10.5 million put into that program as well. Mm-hmm. So early childhood really, really came out on top yeah. this year. And I think we have a governor and a legislature and a shifting political landscape here that early childhood will be a focus for the next several years. Yeah, and I think it speaks to the reality that I think for a lot of families, you know, after the mortgage and the rent, um, after the housing, uh, childcare is becoming a huge expense yep. and it's putting burdens on a lot of families. So um, I think it's really encouraging to see um, a state take responsibility in trying to solve that problem. Yep. I think that's right. So as you see, we, we did a lot around the accessibility, affordability, quality of childcare. We have our tax credit for educators. We have the expansion of full day kindergarten with the expansion of pre-K included. We have our childcare action plan. And then we also worked on a bill that kind of bridged the gap between early childhood and K-12. And that was um, our early childhood. To, to, yeah, let me get my blah, 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 blah. <laughs> it was our early childhood suspensions and expulsions bill. Yeah. So we've talked about this on this podcast before. You've seen it in our videos. We have about 6,003 to 7-year-olds every year who are suspended or expelled from school. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're usually suspended for doing things that typical kids do, like yeah. crying yeah. or acting out. What we wanted to say is that doesn't help kids. Sending them home out of the school doesn't actually help anyone. The they're kids not learning. don't learn. They're, not, learning, they're yeah. not in school. And actually, all it does is make them more likely to get suspended when they come back. So mm-hmm. we wanted to say enough is enough. So we worked with several stakeholders, different school districts, the Rural Alliance of Schools, the Colorado Association of School Boards and Executives, and we came up with a bill to hopefully curb that trend. And it's a bill the Children's Campaign has worked on for like four years now. And it typically has always failed um, in the Republican-controlled Senate. But this year we really worked with stakeholders, got a lot of people to a neutral or support position. And what this bill will do is say you can only suspend a child who's three to seven-year-old, so like preschool through second grade, Babies. You can only babies, little <laughs> young kids. You can only suspend those kids if they are a threat to themselves or another child's mm-hmm. health, life, or safety. Mm-hmm. You can't suspend them for crying. You can't suspend them for acting out. You can take them out of the classroom and find alternatives for them. But we think that this is a right step in the right direction, and we want to thank so many, so many partners that helped us, um, you know, really get that through. I know staff here has worked on it for a while. Uh, Padres Jovenes Unidos has worked on it for so long. Uh, Rosemary Allen, who's been a fierce advocate for this for so long, was involved. She's been on this podcast talking about this. That bill passed. That's you know, it's going to be signed into law hopefully within the next week here. So that kind of bridged our gap from early childhood to K-12. And it was another great year for K-12, too, I thought. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we saw some investments, uh, $77 million towards the budget stabilization factor or the negative factor. So to help uh, cover the obligation the state has towards K-12 education, we put an extra $77 million into that. There was $175 million uh, put in for full-day kindergarten, which we're really excited. And we also worked on a few bills of our own. So we had... um, uh, local school district accountability bill. Our own Leslie Caldwell really worked closely again with the Rural Alliance on that. 
and really help them to write a bill that we could all agree upon and support moving forward Mm -hmm. for how local districts report their accountability measures. Um, And then we were really proud to work on an expansion of a bill that the Children's Campaign has worked on for several years, and that's around school lunch access. Um, So we have a lot of kids in our state who are on free and reduced-price lunch. And if you're in a reduced-price lunch, you you owe a copay every time you go to eat. Well, the reality is some of those kids can't – some of those families can't afford that copay. Um, And so what we wanted to say is, well, let's cover the copay for these kids. We know when kids are happy, healthy, and well-fed, they just do better in school. They perform basic better. Science. <laughs> basic science, right? I know when I was a high schooler and I – There's no way I could right. – co- now today I can't right. concentrate if the I'm The one hungry. energy drink at 9 a.m. did not help <laughs> even though you lie to yourself and say it did. Yeah. It doesn't help at all. So what we want to say is, okay, we passed bills in the in prior sessions to cover that copay up through eighth grade. Well, let's get those last four years. Let's make sure those high schoolers who need more calories, who need more seat time, are actually getting what they need at school. And so moving forward, those kids on the reduced price lunch program will no longer have to pay. The state's going to step up and cover that tab, which is very exciting. Very, very How did health do? Health. Oh, get into our health bucket. Health (laughs) did great. (laughs) I was so proud to work on this this year with health and uh, Aaron uh, Miller, our VP of health, and Sam Espinoza, who just did so well. So we passed our – we had our own about three bills that we worked on. So we worked on a bill with the uh, um, Oral Health Association to provide uh, dental benefits or dental coverage to about 900 pregnant women on the CHIP Plus program. So CHIP Plus is um, eligible for pregnant women and for kids, but for some reason these women didn't get the dental benefit that their kids would have gotten. So we know that during uh, the prenatal time that uh, oral health is critical, right? You can pass bacteria down to your to your newborn, to, to the child, um, and it also just has a lot of implications for how that kid comes out into the world, can mm-hmm. lead to low birth, other things like that. So we wanted to say 900 women, that's not a large amount. We should be able to give them a critical dental benefit, and we got bipartisan support. I think yeah. we only got like one, one no, no vote. vote. One yeah. no vote the entire process that's to provide amazing. a really critical benefit for a small amount of women. But we know that that's going to help once again for generations to come. If those kids yeah. are coming into this world healthy. The best scenario. Right, yeah. That's yeah. really going to help them out. Um, and then we worked on a couple other bills for um, mothers and women. And it was really proud to work on. So um, every year, last couple of years, there have been opioid bills to help combat the opioid crisis and epidemic in our state. And one of the bills this year we were involved in was around opioid prevention. And this was a big bill, a few million dollars in it. And we advocated for a pilot program to provide um, medication-assisted treatment for substance abuse disorders uh, within OB clinics. And then another pilot to provide OB services within substance use disorder facilities. Kind of makes sense. Makes sense, right? <laughs> yeah. Knowing that if you're um, a pregnant individual who has a substance use disorder, it's not always easier to be able to go to multiple facilities to get the help. So if we can integrate some of these and actually see positive results, we might be able to see an expansion of this program in future years. Mm-hmm. So Erin did a great job. She was a fierce advocate for that. And that policy ended up making it in. And we got about $700,000 for this pilot program. And mm-hmm. we're going to see that kick off here in the next year. We also worked on a really um, heartfelt and touching bill that um, has been focus of this podcast. And that was around maternal mortality. 
Uh, we know that about 30 um, women die a year either during pregnancy or a year after from a wide variety of causes. But we now know that a good leading uh, chunk of those causes is from substance abuse and depression, so mental health and behavioral health issues. And we're one of the last few states to not put our Maternal Mortality Review Committee into statute and actually give it the resources it needs to provide real-time recommendations. So Aaron's been working on this bill for like three years. It actually died multiple years ago. Mm-hmm. This year it passed with unanimous support, not a single no vote. Every committee unanimous, every floor vote unanimous, House unanimous, Senate unanimous. It'll be signed into law here soon. But that was a big deal. That was a big deal. We had a lot of women come down who um, had either lost daughters, had lost loved ones, had lost spouses in childbirth or who were who had uh, traumatic birth experiences and were fortunate to still be with us and were able to share their experiences about how we can advocate for other women and each other. So that was, um, you know, really critical. Uh, bill to see get through and one that was tearful at times really heartfelt but one of the ones i'm just most proud of to have worked on that's awesome yeah that's beautiful can i give you one more sure i'm just so excited for (laughs) because it crosses every single area okay um and i thought it was interesting that the children's campaign along with a few other partners like the fiscal institute center for law and policy and then common cause were leading the charge on this and it's around the census the 2020 census when I joined the children's campaign and, and all of a sudden I was hearing about all this census work we had to do, I was like, why are we why are we involved in the census? Shouldn't mm-hmm. that just be a federal thing that just happens? Mm-hmm. And then you find out that there are a ton of barriers to actually getting an accurate count every census and that this one would be no different and actually a few additional challenges would be involved. And we knew there, there'd be no federal funds coming from the government to yeah. help us out. Um, and if we don't do well, other states basically get the money and the political power we that need. Colorado deserves. Yes, yeah. that we deserve. So we were able to work with um, several people um, and pass a bill to provide six million dollars for outreach for the census. So we know that hard to count communities include kids under the age of five, senior citizens, rural areas. We're, we're now going to have dollars to actually make sure that information is getting out to these groups, including. Um, immigrant communities to make sure that they are filling out the census because the census is not about counting every citizen. It's about counting every person. And we want to make sure every person is counted in our state. Yeah. And Sarah Hughes, our VP of research, has talked about this on this podcast. But later oh, on in <laughs> so good. Later on in the summer, we will do a, bon- a bonus episode on how you can get involved in what that effort looks like. So I'm all wrapped up with my questions, okay. but if you have any um, last-minute things or any questions, we have about a minute or two. minute or two left. Okay. Well, I just want to say thank you to everyone who helped us out this year. It was a great session for kids and families. We have so many great legislative partners, um, so many great nonprofits and other organizations that are there at the Capitol. I hope all the legislators get a nice break here. You know, they are basically— they're, they're off. They're still legislators, but they're off until next January. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I hope they get some relaxation in. But, Baze, I really wanted to see, you know, this is your first year doing a podcast. And as, you know, the fourth time very famous guest, <laughs> um, how was it for you? Did you like being on the other side of the mic? Did you like kind of running the show? Um, it is a very uh, a rewarding feeling to be able to break down a very complicated policy that feels far away for a lot of people and present it in a 20-minute window 
so that others can really understand and also get their voices heard. I think the, the part that has been really empowering is the part uh, where people have taken hold of the stories around the maternal mortality yeah. or speaking up at the state capitol and really telling their story and owning their experiences and really believing that the General Assembly works for them. Yeah. They don't work for the General Assembly yeah. and that the uh, the governor's office is their office and then they get to tell legislators their story has been um, very rewarding. Yeah. So power of advocacy. Yeah, right? it is. It is an incredible work. Who um, was your favorite interviewee? And I, of like, course, you. Oh, okay. uh, Besides the famous <laughs> me, I think everybody has their own style, mm-hmm. and they tell the stories of these complicated policy issues in a way that make it accessible for people. Um, so it's very hard to choose, um, but I, I just love everybody's passion and. Yeah commitment to the work honestly yeah Yeah. that's something that really is evident everywhere in the children's campaign halls is that we have passionate people um who are willing to go and fight at the capitol and in other forms to exactly to get stuff done for kids and families exactly um well thank you so much for sticking with us for the first ever season of the west steps and we will be back um with bonus episodes throughout the summer but our weekly episodes will come back again on the 2020 um, legislative session that feels far away but it will come back oh, very quick you know six um, months will go by like exactly that. Um, but in the meantime we would love to hear from you about what what was your favorite part what were the parts that didn't work for you what were the parts that you wish we did more of and what were the parts we you wish we did less of? <laughs> um, so if you can reach out to us at beza at coloradokids.org, that's B-E-Z-A at coloradokids.org, and, and tell us what you thought and tell us what, um, what were your favorite parts. We would love to hear from you. We will be back soon, um, and watch out for in your feeds for bonus episodes. And make sure you um, send this podcast to your friends and family and let them know that the children's campaign is here for kids and families. Woo woo. Woo woo. All right. Uh, We will talk to you soon. And thank you so much, Riley. Thank you, Beza.